if you could look in my office, I still have uh, lots of memories on the space shuttle uh, missions here with me. And I mean, that is an absolute privilege uh, to be uh, to have been part of the Circe Exa missions in '94, and then the shuttle radar topography mission in February 2000. Absolute privilege. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tomapos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science, their careers, and their passions. Today, we've got our eyes on the stars. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA Committee of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The IDEA Committee is devoted to empowering engineers and scientists from diverse backgrounds to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is by pairing established and emerging geoscientists through their Women Mentoring Women program. In this year-long mentorship, careers blossom and friendships are born across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more and become a member, visit grss-ieee.org community idea. I started out becoming a physical geographer. Um, but then through an internship, I got interested in remote sensing. This is Dr. Christiane Schmulius. She's a professor for Earth Observation at University Jena in Germany. She's been in the field of remote sensing for over 30 years, and during her career, she's seen a lot of change. Whenever you applied for a project or even um, your abstracts to, for example, the IGARS conference, everything had to be there on paper and fax machines were the big bottleneck. <laughs> so, I mean, that is something that has changed very, very much. This theme of change has been present throughout Chris's life, not only with respect to the field of remote sensing, but also in her career trajectory. Since beginning her career in the early 80s, she has been part of several large biomass mapping projects, three space shuttle missions, and has continued to combine her passions for space and forests in the work she pursues as a professor. For Chris, her secret to success comes down to one principle, enthusiasm. I applied uh, for Fulbright scholarship and, well, fortunately, I was obviously so enthusiastic and well-prepared that I won the Fulbright and that changed my life. Um, going to the U.S., doing my master's degree at the University of California in Santa Barbara, uh, which was in the 80s uh, and still is a remote sensing center of excellence, I learned so much about remote sensing that then coming back to Germany, I wanted to uh, keep working in that career. And I think that's the theme of my career. If you, are, if you are enthusiastic about what you are doing, you're good. That's so true, at least in most cases. So what inspired this enthusiasm you had for remote sensing? One thing that I love uh, is forests. Yeah, so I, I love to work in forests. And what brought me into remote sensing were these amazing pictures that Lanza took of um, the surface of our planet. That amazed me um, to see the heterogeneity of the surface. So it was really first a love to being outside, uh, being in the forests, and obviously, um, the change in the forest. When I studied in the, did my bachelor's or started with my diploma in Germany in the in the early eighties, um, we had a big problem on acid rain. And then 
the awareness increased everywhere um, that the dying forests were directly related to uh, human actions. And so monitoring um, the problems to help understanding what is happening and obviously to give simple things like a map to politicians to help them to plan protective measures and to watch whether the protective measures work yeah is I, for me this is a fulfillment <laughs> of uh, what i like so it sounds like being able to create change or impact others is part of what motivates you with respect to remote sensing have there been other experiences where your work has led to changes in the 90s, in the beginning of this millennium, um, I coordinated large European projects on mapping Siberian forests. And in our case, we took, we were the first ones applying radar satellite data to mapping forest above ground biomass. That area was assumed to be one of the carbon sinks. We had a dynamic global vegetation modelers with us in our team, um, and they had a, a few parameters that they wanted to uh, retrieve from the remote sensing community. And what turned out is that the modelers and also then the connected carbon modelers, they were surprised how heterogeneous the surface is. So after looking at the Earth observation data, it became obvious to them that they had to adjust also their vegetation models and carbon models because of the heterogeneity. That must have been gratifying. Yep. <laughs> so your team was one of the first to apply radar satellite data to forest mapping. What was challenging about being the first ones to do this? The challenging part was to convince a community that was used to working with optical satellite data that uh, radar satellites can contribute with complementary information. So as the radar remote sensing experts, we had to convince the community that we are able to produce operationally land surface products, such as forest above ground biomass. And that was I mean, that is still taking time. Well, now that we have satellites, radar satellites in space that operationally deliver uh, data, this awareness is more and more increasing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are in wonderful times uh, because, again, radar remote sensing delivers complementary information to what optical satellites can do. And when did you feel like you finally convinced people that radar was an option for land surface products? Well, the breakthrough came... Uh, in the late 90s, possibly, in the large, uh, the first large uh, conferences um, that the European Space Agency organized called the Living Planet Symposia. We were a team, I think about 14 institutions, uh, radar experts and dynamic global vegetation modelers. And uh, we had three very, very intensive years on defining how to design a classification procedure that produces an operational product. At that time, it was a lot of thinking about what was about 120 frames of radar satellite images and we had for each of these frames, we had we had only two uh, C-band radar images from the ERS-1 and 2 satellites, and we had one L-band image. So it's, it's ridiculous thinking today of just these three radar satellite images that we had, but we wanted to get out as much as possible. And 
I remember when we uh, first time presented a one million square kilometer map of uh, central Siberian uh, forest above ground biomass in a scale of one to 100,000. And we had shown to the world that we could do it operationally on this very large area. We did not have to concentrate frame by frame and uh, adjust again our model. It was operational and that was just overwhelming. Wow, that sounds like an incredible experience. <laughs> yeah. What other things have changed during your time in the field? Uh, I mean, first of all, we have better temporal resolution, much better than five, six years ago. And we have also much better spatial resolution. Um, the accuracies of what we map have improved. Also by exploiting different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum in synergy, uh, using uh, optical wavelengths, using radar, passive and active, we are able to limit the uh, uncertainties to a larger degree. We still need a lot of in situ information, and that's still the big, that's the bottleneck today. Um, But since about five years, since the European Sentinel satellites were launched, we are in a different era, in a very different era, which makes me as a remote sensing person very, very happy. What do you mean when you say we're in a different era? Uh, well, uh, now again, we are in a, I don't want to call it big data era because I mean, it's, it's just a slow slogan, yeah. But it's the time series era. And um, we have a motto here in Jena that I teach our students uh, every course. Uh, I remind them. Um, and my motto is treat each pixel with respect. That's my remote sensing motto. And why? Because each pixel is a physical measurement in a specific wavelength at a specific time with a specific geometric resolution. So you always have to acknowledge and remember what's the the size that the pixel covers on the ground because everything you get from that pixel is a mixed signa signature, whether it's optical or it's radar. It's always mixed depending on the geometry of uh, the pixel resolution, the geometrical resolution. Now, so you have to acknowledge that. And now with the time series, we get into a new dimension. We can we can watch that pixel over time. With uh, radar data, uh, it can be twice a day if we, because we can use ascending and descending orbits. Um, the further north you go, you have overlapping swaths. Yeah, so this temporal resolution gives you a, a totally new dimension to exploring optical and radar data. And what this means is the planet becomes alive and we need new algorithms, new methods, new approaches, how to consider these, what I say as treat each pixel with respect, still consider the pixel, apply physical models, of course, machine learning, apply that, but try to merge your physical understanding of whether it's an optical or radar signal, your physical understanding what's happening now with this new time dimension. Up next, Chris tells us about her work on three different space shuttle missions. She also shares a crazy story about attempting to bring a shuttle back to Earth in one piece. Did it burn up in the atmosphere or did the shuttle and all its data make it safely back to Earth? Find out after the break. Worldwide, women remain underrepresented in the STEM workforce. 
That's why the IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society has developed a highly organized and incredibly rewarding mentorship program for women. Through this year-long program, mentors support mentees in setting goals, problem-solving challenges, and celebrating successes. I think it's very rewarding to know that you have positive impact on a young woman's career in science. More importantly, you're developing also friendship between the two of you. So it's highly rewarding, really. Consider offering your expertise as a mentor or bringing your enthusiasm and questions as a mentee. Visit grss-ieee.org slash community slash idea to sign up. And we're back. Today, we've been learning about change in the field of remote sensing from Dr. Christian Schmulius, professor of Earth Observation at University Jena in Germany. From capturing radar images that altered scientists' vegetation and carbon models to the fact that no one submits their conference papers by fax anymore, Chris has seen a lot. But as she shared with us, some of her coolest experiences as a remote sensing scientist have come from being part of space shuttle missions. So what's the most memorable moment you can remember from your career? Oh, yes, it is. It, it, that's um, that is a difficult question because um, I had, um, well, being part of three space shuttle missions as the payload in the payload operations center um, in Houston. It, it, there's nothing can top that. <laughs> Although I love my radar satellites and I love the projects we we then did with all the operational data, um, but the three space shuttle missions, I guess that's a that's a highlight. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about your role you played in these missions? What were your responsibilities? In the Circe Exa missions in 94, um, we had two science team leads. Uh, it was on the American side. Uh, it was Ellen Stofan. Um, she was responsible for the radar experiments from the JPL radar antennas. And I was the German counterpart and, and also actually for the Italian team for the expand applications, which was the German antenna. So we had to coordinate uh, these, what we call the data takes. Uh, we had to coordinate uh, when, under which incidence angle, which side was being mapped, uh, how often. And this had to be, of course, brought together with the orbit characteristics of the, the space shuttle campaign. Um, and with the amount of tapes we had in the shuttle, because we obviously had only restricted space. Um, and so we had to take care that all the science members uh, of the, the international science community um, was happy with the mission plan so that everybody got what they needed and wanted. And that was my role. And then for SRTM, I was a project scientist on the DLR side. Um, and again, uh, that was more an operational mission, but we still had to make sure that the expand antennas uh, worked uh, nicely in synergy with the JPL uh, C-band um, and L-band for Exxon and only C-band antennas for SRTM. And what was it like working on this these space shuttle missions? Oh, a lot of excitement, uh, a lot of excitement. The team was marvelous. Um, being part of this American, Italian, German team, the team spirit uh, working jointly 
on having these marvelous radar sensors up in space, but only for yeah, 11, 12 days uh, mission time because of the shuttle. Well, obviously, it has to come back to um, the Earth's surface. So we had a large team, an international global team everywhere in, in the, on each continent. We had super sites where scientists were preparing in situ measurements on the ground while the space shuttle was flying around the Earth. It was a huge organizational effort, but there is also a very special flavor to these missions because on the NASA JPL side, as it was uh, Diane Evans who was leading the, the science team. And, um, well, she, she had an eye on employing uh, women as part of the uh, NASA science team. And an experience I had there was just, it was so much fun to work with women. That was a very special um, team design, let's say, that uh, was also new for my DLR colleagues. Was that the first time you had fellow women on your team? Yes. And how do you compare it with what you see in, in in laboratories right now? That's an interesting observation. It depends very much on the country. So you, you have to ask that question actually for each country. And then you have to consider the, let's say, the, the, maybe the gender history of that country. So in Germany, we have a, I mean, reunification is 30 years ago. But in East Germany, there was a very different perception of women and family and work and family. It, it was um, obvious that all women had to work. And so childcare was part of being a family. In West Germany, it was much more conservative. So I grew up in West Germany where everybody told you if you if you get kids, uh, yeah, you have to stop your scientific career and you have to stay home for 10 years at least. Yeah, you have to take care of your children. So childcare was not very well developed. And even now, 30 years after reunification, there are still differences in these perceptions between East Germany and West Germany. Because in East Germany, you have the East German mothers yeah, who tell their children now, you see, you can do both. And childcare is still better in East Germany. Uh, it's still better implemented than in West Germany. So, um, you know, it's a lot of, uh, and I, what, I, what I see is the doors are open for women. So I'm talking for Germany now. I cannot speak for other countries. Yeah, The doors are open for female scientists so use the opportunities. And there's a lot of support also to enable young women to have children and do their scientists, scientific careers. I mean, you have a woman scientist who's leading the country. So Germany has definitely made progress. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the space shuttle missions, though, what was the coolest moment you experienced on a mission? Um, it's really very, very tough um, to say what's the coolest, but uh, let's say that there was one uh, frightening uh, moment uh, at the end of the uh, shuttle radar topography mission, the SRTM mission, uh, when the 60-meter boom had to be retrieved into the shuttle uh, payload bay. So everything went well, which, which is a miracle by itself uh, to bring in uh, this fiber construction, all the cables that went out to the second uh, passive antennas out on the boom. But when everything was uh, retrieved, um, the lid of the container did not close. And you cannot bring a space shuttle back through the atmosphere to, to the Earth's surface when a container is not fixed in the payload bay. 
So these, this was a night shift that was very, very exciting because there were only two options, an EVA, an extravehicular activity, the, the astronauts would have to go out and fix it, but there was not enough time, not enough fuel for this. And then there was another option that the container would be exploded from the payload bay. I mean, never before somebody did this yeah, to, to, just to get rid of the container in the payload bay. Um, so there was many hours of discussing what to do. And, and finally, after many tests, the lead uh, of the payload operations center said, well, let's just release the mechanism and let's see if we shut off everything, release it, whether the lid goes back to the container. That is for me one of the moments seeing that lid you know, moving into the container and closing it. And so we knew this shuttle mission is safe and the astronauts come back. The data were all on tapes. Yeah, there's no, only some of them were downlinked. Most of it was, was on tapes, on analog tapes in the space shuttle. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. So uh, we were just happy, happy, happy. So the, if you say, what was the coolest moment? That was the coolest moment seeing that lid close again. <laughs> I can actually feel how you were so nervous and then oh. eventually mm. it became a relief. It's amazing yes. to hear this memory. <laughs> yes. Um, I know that you've been in the field of teaching also uh, and you have projects and there's this project called Echoes in Space and um, I want to know what this is about. The story really goes back to, um, again, UCSB, Santa Barbara, um, having the pleasure of participating in a first radar seminar there um, and sitting as a master's student in that class. And I did not understand much, I have to say. <laughs> it was just too, radar is very technical. So when I entered, uh, even as a PhD student, um, I felt the need that we have to teach radar remote sensing. Um, and in an easy way, so that a bachelor student um, gets not frightened by these strange radar signals, but gets attracted, like I did. So over the years, we collected a lot of teaching material, and uh, German aerospace center said, why don't you build up a radar education program? So with a large team, we collected about 4,000 slides and organized them in a nice uh, radar teaching uh, scenario. But still, to get you launched or hooked up with radar, we had this massive open online course, the Echoes in Space MOOC, um, funded by the European Space Agency. And uh, we get excellent feedback. I think by now, 8,000 people worldwide took that class. So teaching radar is... Well, very much close to my heart and I enjoy every year I teach a full seminar on radar remote sensing to our bachelor students and I love uh, seeing them get uh, interested uh, in my field. It's, that's always wonderful. I agree. If you want to expand this network, then you have to really teach other people and inspire them. And I, I know that you are inspiring so many scientists and for this, what, what do you think or what advice would you have for listeners right, right now that will be listening to our podcast? All I can say is the last sentence uh, that having a wonderful life as a scientist uh, and a wonderful private life that makes me a lucky person and, and both belong together. So I can only encourage all uh, young students and becoming scientists, uh, again, follow your enthusiasm for science. It's a wonderful life. Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. 
For more information about Dr. Christine Schmulius and her research, check out the website eo.uni-yana.de. If you like the show, be sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, check out the socials of our sponsors at IEEE Win GRSS on Facebook and Twitter and IEEE Women in GRSS on LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tumampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Heather McNairn, Sean Kefauver, and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you've been listening to Down to Earth.